0: CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Siemens Smart Grid. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sunjog All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sunjog All.
1: Hello and uh, welcome to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. And as always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter, hashtag CTRLive, and look for this show as hashtag security. Today's topic is enabling big intelligence against APTs, which is advanced persistent techs. Our guests for today's show are Dr. Roger Schell, a professor at the University of Southern California, supporting the Master of Cybersecurity degree program. Good morning, Roger. How are you? Well, just fine. Thank you. Great. And we have Roy Malinger, who's the Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer with WellPoint. Good morning, Roy. Good how morning, are you doing? Good morning, Jog. How are you? Very good. Great to have both of you on the show. And today we wanted to explore a new idea about uh, defending against advanced uh, persistent threats or APTs. And we would, we, we actually found that it is somewhat polarizing in what methods will actually be effective. So Roger and Roy each represent fairly, uh, I would not say necessarily a different viewpoints, but perhaps there would be two different viewpoints we could discuss on, on the subject. And we hope uh, their back-and-forth discussion will be very educational and thought-provoking. So uh, to start with, uh, let's go with you, Roy. Uh, we know that APTs are, of course, being there, and now we recognize that they are threats, and they're perhaps keeping CISOs up at night. What are we trying to do to um, – I mean, has there been any luck in, in handling them in a predictable manner? And if if at all we are trying to do and go in that direction – are we doing something different in terms of better prepare ourselves so that in future we don't have more and more of these?
2: I would say uh, yes, Sanjog. I, I, I think through the collaboration that I'm seeing across you know, the various uh, industry sectors, um, CIOs and those responsible for IT security are definitely working more collaboratively. Um, I see better partnership um, with the uh, government and the private sector on sharing intelligence data and information information regarding APT's themselves Um, and I know we're going to talk uh, about big data today and how big data actually helps us uh, address that threat. Um, The technology is not fully mature uh, but there are parts of it. Um, I think certainly a lot of organizations are using what I would call small or medium data to begin addressing the threats that APT's pose. Big data is there. Um, certainly the federal government intelligence agencies have been using that. I think in the private sector, we're still maturing the tools and the technologies, but we have components. We've got parts of that. And so that's refreshing to see. Um, and I think we'll continue to move down a line of progress. I think it's incremental progress. Uh, but I think applying big data to cybersecurity is a newer concept on the private sector, and and I think we're going to get there.
1: Roger, when you look at this whole uh, I would not call it still new, but it is it is people are still grappling, so this problem is not totally solved yet so if you were to look at organizations the way they're approaching it, do you see a fundamental flaw which is uh, a self defeating type of uh, uh, an approach well, i do I
3: uh, think there 's a fundamental difference in the kinds of threats that one faces there 's two classes of attack that exist, and uh, one is a the, I'd call almost acts of nature, the hackers, the uh, bored students, which are out attacking things. And those are the things which make the daily newspapers that talk about the exploits. I think the thing that uh, a, a advanced threat uh, provides is the resources that they can use subversion. They can actually insert uh, flaws into the system during their creation, during their installation. And if you look at the serious uh, attacks, I think that that's uh, the kind of attack that are not going to be detected by uh, looking at uh, what's going on in a wire. They're going to be below the radar. And I think that what we're doing today is almost exclusively focused on the, uh, the of random attacks, the acts of nature, rather than the deliberate attacks of using subversion.
1: Roy, would you have a rebuttal to that? Are we really knowingly ignoring the, the undercurrent, if you will, of the attacks and just looking at the ones which are more visible? Um, no, I agree
2: with what Roger is saying. I, I, I totally uh, uh, agree with the, the concept. There are two different types of attacks, absolutely. You know, the, the very nature of an advanced persistent threat is they're, they're subtle. They are um, stealthy. You know, they are designed by whether it's nation-state, organized crime, um, um, syndicates that have the resources to actually launch attack that's focused and dedicated and targeted um, that's going to get in. Um, I think we're traditionally been looking at, you know, as Roger said, the perimeter, you know, what we can uh, focus on and measure. But I think with big data, eventually, we'll be able to put more pieces together. I don't know that we're going to solve it or prevent I think what I'm seeing is a paradigm shift, that, and I'm, I won't paraphrase what Roger said, but, you know, he can uh, agree or, or, or rebuttal. But traditionally, I think the controls have been to protect all assets. That's how IT technology and security has been focused. And it's really been more of a preventative approach. And I think the paradigm shift that we're seeing on cyber threat management is now detective controls versus preventative controls. Um, it's more threat detection. Instead sort of trying to protect everything, we, we obviously have to continue to protect the perimeter. Um, But we have to approach this issue or or this challenge with the perspective that if an advanced uh, persistent threat uh, uh, adversary wants to get to your crown jewels, they're going to find a way to do that. Um, So we're no longer going to just be able to keep them out. We need to understand that if somebody really wants to get in, they will. And it's now more about finding that penetration or that attack um, as quickly as we can, reacting to it appropriately. And before um, significant losses happen, and trying to respond you know, appropriately, close that door, et cetera, minimize uh, the loss or, or the attack uh, um, success.
1: Roger, would you say that uh, the the approach that we take, whether we remain more peripheral or we start digging deeper, or you just start chasing a wild goose, if you will, in terms of not knowing where it is, but we're going to start keep digging, is that? A corporation or an organization's, um, you know, collective decision, or should it be, or is it being left today in the hands of the information security officer, who could have one or the other flavor, and then we are literally handing over the the organization's safety and and uh, security in the hands of people versus an organization taking a decision as a as a whole.
3: Well, I think that the individual users and the large uh, number of people in the organization really cannot do much individually about the uh, advanced threat and the the threats of uh, subversion. I'm concerned that uh, when we say, well, they're going to get at the crown jewels anyway, that we have a self-fulfilling sort of a strategy that we've essentially said uh, we're not going to try and deal with the uh, serious attacker who's doing that because we think that's too hard. I observe that uh, in my background in the uh, dealing with nation-state kind of attacks in the past, uh, in the government background, uh, <clears throat> the government, if they're trying to protect something like cryptographic keys, uh, simply can't afford to say, well, they're going to get those anyway. So what they have and what the technology provides is a, a strong foundation in which we can say that we can resist attacks for the serious uh, resources we have and that we can actually have a mathematical base for verifying the uh, correctness of those protections against those serious uh, resources. What I see is what we're doing today on the peripheral, looking at the threats after the fact, after the closing the door after the horse is out, um, we're simply not applying those technologies. We're simply not doing anything. Significant to deal with the problem of subversion. Just
2: isn't happening. Well, if I George, may, you... I, if I may, Sajak, I I'd never said that they're going to get to the crown jewels anyway. I think the paradigm shift is that we have to identify what those crown jewels are at an organizational level. Every organization has something or that information that is most privileged or needs to be most protected. My comment is that if a targeted attacker wants to focus on you, they will find a way in. It doesn't mean they're going to get to the crown jewels and, and there's no hope. The common is the enterprise, you know, the, the Internet of Things, the organizational infrastructures are just so huge, just so big, and there's so many vulnerabilities in software code and appliance devices, misconfigurations, human error, etc. That if an advanced attacker wants to get in, they will. They will find a way eventually. You know, what you need to do is obviously determine what is most um, most precious, which you need to protect, put your your resources against that, and certainly don't um, ignore the perimeter, but you need to have layered security. So that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that they're going to get to the crown jewels. I don't think that's the case. But I think you definitely have to have robust protection around those assets that need to be safeguarded to the highest degree, and I think that's the same approach the government takes.
1: So, Roger, would you say this is a case of uh, you, well, the way you came across is it looks like they're not doing anything. Is that the case of an intent not being there, or just they don't have the resources or this being a priority? Why do you think this is not happening in your view?
3: Well, I'm, I'm not a sociologist, so the questions of why are, uh, <laughs> uh, are not ones I'm <laughs> equipped to answer. But what I observe is that uh, we uh, tend to do the things that we can uh, feel like we can make progress on. And so looking at the threats and saying, well, we can always detect these uh, amateur threats are there, that we can look at them. If we get more data on that, we can collect more, we can identify more threats. And so we feel like we're making progress. Uh, I think that part of the difficulty is that at the level of an individual CIO uh, or security officer, they don't have a lot of products that are offered in the marketplace to address the deliberate subversion. And consequently, They do not really want to go to their boss and say, well, we've got this problem of serious attacks being mounted by uh, adversaries doing subversion, and we really don't have anything significant that we can do cheaply and easy to address that. And that's the problem. Uh, So I think it's not a malicious activity, but I think it's somewhat an unwillingness to admit the seriousness of the problem.
1: Roy, when you look at the same the, the response that Roger gave, I'm, I would totally assume that a CISO gets the big fat paycheck because the person is uh, assigned to this role of making sure they secure the fort. Now, the question comes, is it as per Roger that maybe the technology doesn't exist to that degree or it has not been refined or it is not showing the proof that by applying, say, big intelligence, we spoke about that means you use big data to collect intelligence and get and somewhere with it. So so we, we are saying we are um, confined by the limits of technology, or is it the way an organization at all levels operate because people could create uh, windows when you've got a very strong door by not behaving responsibly, or there is a mismanagement? Where would you point fingers when almost every organization that is trying to do this is not fully able to handle it?
2: Well... I don't know that every organization is the same. Um, you know, in, in response to Roger, uh, as the CISO for Wellpoint, I have certainly advised my senior executive management uh, and my board of directors uh, on, you know, the reality of advanced persistent threats and um, where our defenses stand and the investment requirements that we need. And from the collaboration that, that I have with other CISOs, I, I think they've done the same thing. So I don't think all. CIOs or CSOs are afraid to go up to management and say we need more money or our defenses um aren't at the level they need to be to address the new emerging threats that we see on you know on the cyber landscape. Um, I think I agree with Roger the technology is not fully there. Um there's pieces of it and I continue to see that emerge, but it's very much in its infancy. Um it's not the silver bullet. You know, certainly um the NSA with their supercomputers can crunch you know much more data than you know the private sector can. But when we start looking at our ability to correlate information, there's a lot of bolt-on solutions. And of course, they're not integrated, and that's why I think we need to see some maturing. When you start pulling in remote access VPN logs with IP addresses and geolocation and the user IDs, and you look at account lockout data and firewall logs and your IPS sensor data and all that data that's there, um, that's not going to necessarily prevent but it certainly may provide a fingerprint or provide you with some intelligence that something's happening that you need to look further. um... so again, it's, it's the detective versus the preventive approach. And I'm not saying we don't do preventative, uh, technology as well, and not just the detective. But there, again, the technology's not fully there to integrate all of these sources, but there are, two, there's beginning to be some technology and some design and some vendor solutions, and I think we've got a ways to go, but you um, yeah, at least we're, We're looking at that big data, and how it could be used, not just for marketing purposes, but, you know, in the private sector on the cyber side as well.
1: Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And, Roger, when we come back, let's define what is it that our organizations need in terms of technology or what that technology can do in order for us to say now we have everything that we wanted and there is no other reason why we should not be able to get a good handle on APTs. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back.
4: US and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google, lead the charge portal.
0: If you have a question or comment, call toll free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke all. Welcome back.
1: Sir so Roger, would you have a utopic definition of what you would like to see in terms of technology? And the preparedness and, and the foundation in an organization for them to feel that they have everything in order to, uh, you know, guard against these APTs.
3: Well, of course there's no such thing as perfect security. So they're not going to have uh, everything. My concern is that one can uh, make a dramatic difference by using the technology that we know about. I think the first uh, step is one that Roy alluded to. I very much agree that we have to identify which the sensitive information is. And that is really, we have to have a security policy. We have to have, this information is more sensitive than that. We're mostly concerned about its modification, or we're concerned about its disclosure. That's a security policy. The folks at NIST uh, for years have advocated that one should, A uh, first step is they call categorize the data, if you will, Put a label on the data. You say this is sensitive uh, information, financially sensitive. This is proprietary information, uh, trade secrets, whatever, and to provide a label for that. That's the first step, and you cannot get uh, if, uh, something you would consider a solution unless you first define what your policy is. And I think Roy was alluding to the same. So that's the first step, and I find that. Uh, many organizations don't really have a formal way of identifying the different kinds of data. If I look, it isn't marked. The individuals are not authorized in terms of who can access to it in a precise way. So that's the first step. If one has that, then my uh, not utopic view, but I think the thing that can make a dramatic difference is that we can essentially view uh, what you know we might call domains of security and uh, as a somewhat technical term, which says that's the people and the information at a given uh, authorization class of information. And I can keep the information within the domain where it belongs. So that if I'm dealing with privacy information uh, at a major retailer and they want to control the credit card data and other sort of personal uh, information, that can be identified and uh, controlled in a way that keeps that information from leaking where it shouldn't go and now the technology under that is something that's been you know fundamentally known for uh, decades the government has deployed uh, half a dozen systems in which they've used this technology is called a security curl which provides a very strong guarantee, in fact, a mathematical proof, that the information can't leak from one domain to another. And it's not just a theory. It's something that's been built into systems used to control cryptographic keys, missile-targeting data, uh, things like that. Uh, the industry people, in terms of offering it from vendors, as I've talked to the major software vendors that you see out there, particularly operating systems which they have to run on, their view of the world is that customers are not willing to pay for the security that customers, that their clients do not insist on having this verifiable protection, and so I think what the individual organizations can do is to start raising that as a purchase requirement, as opposed to just well, we need to do something about security.
1: If that was the case, then Roy, you would do you think you can really uh, become the leader of an organization um, handling security when they say I'm not willing to put walls in this fort i mean the way the way rogers is uh, is uh, saying this perhaps that what but but do you think that's what the, in your view that's the case where we are uh, we are seeing resistance from the users that okay we don't want this to be as secure and then we say we have to make it secure
2: i um i agree with what rogers is saying i mean certainly you know having worked in the federal government side um, there are ways to to definitely secure a computer system and i'll just use that as a broad term, um, and it's my esteemed colleague uh, in the Orange Brook uh, that he, uh, he helped bring, uh, bring to publication. Uh, we, we all are familiar with that, have been, been in the business for a number of years. Um, and, and you can certainly design you know, secure computing facilities, um, but there's a huge difference, obviously, between the government sector and the private sector. And in the government, you can, you know, compartmentalize, and you can have, you know, secure computing facilities and skips and and things such as that, and classification levels, and and, and all the not only logical layers but the physical controls of the physical layers as well. Um, will the private sector allow for that? Uh, it, that's very difficult. Um, it's it's a it's a different focus. Obviously, business wants access to data and it's the bottom line. Of course, when there is a breach, it affects the bottom line. And, and so it's, it's the balance that you have to strike. How much do you pay for security? All the security professionals, we'd love to see more security, but there also has to be a usability component factored in. And it's a risk, and it's a risk decision of management. How much will you, um, will you pay to prevent? And, and every organization has to answer that themselves you know what is your risk tolerance and how much do you actually spend on security now i do agree um with roger that uh i think the industry can do a lot more and not just necessarily cisos but i think the technology industry as a whole uh when you look at the number of bugs and holes that come out in software products and of course we're all reacting uh, all my co- my colleagues are reacting the last couple of weeks to the open ssl vulnerability you know called heartbleed um when you look at that and in just any product that 's out there and the number of security patches and fixes that have to be applied you know, code is not and software products are not delivered you know, with the same focus of security um, as we'd like to see and that happens certainly in the government sectors for secure computing facilities so improving just the software quality and and addressing the security of software um, and of operating systems themselves you know will go a long way to closing down a lot of the vulnerabilities whether it 's from Just a routine kit hacker or it's an advanced persistent threat. Um so that's the biggest challenge I think the industry has, you know, in the sheer size and complexity of of, you know large organizations, infrastructures, um, and just trying to maintain everything, multiple data centers, multiple you know, network operating systems and centers and, and applications, you know, that's the challenge that's out there um with all the different products and applications that are running. Uh we can lock down more but then it affects usability and obviously management's uh, ability to to run their operations. So it's a balancing act.
1: Roy, then why why to even go this route? Why to even have this discussion that we could do better when business fundamentally says, I'm going to uh, balance between risk and my business continuity or business profitability? Why why even this discussion? Because then let it come, we will react when it comes to it, and we will do whatever our budget allows and life is good.
2: Well, I think that's where the CISOs, the chief risk officers, uh, come in, because our job is to understand what that risk is and help interpret that and translate that into business you know, speak that the senior executives, those that do marketing and sales and operations, et cetera, can understand so they can help make informed risk decisions. And I think the more awareness that's out there, the more that you can present your case of what we need to do, what we need to protect against, you know, the easier it is to make progress and to get funding. I've been very successful here at WellPoint, um, incrementally growing our program since I started, and, and management's been very responsive and very supportive. But it's like everything. You can't boil the ocean. You have to figure out what are you going to invest in, whether it's through human capital resources or investment dollars, and what, where do you want to go, and what is it you're trying to achieve. Um, and so it's the balancing act. I think it's like anything. You can, you know, go from here to Chicago, from Indianapolis to Chicago in a, you know, Chevy, or you can pick a Cadillac. But you know, how do you want to get there and how much you're willing to invest? And that's an individual decision, you know, per organization. The threats that I have, you know, in the healthcare sector are not dissimilar to what the banking or financial services sector has, but the information that needs to pre- be protected is different. It's a different system. Same with the energy sector and same with Department of Defense um, or in the industrial um, sector. So it, it's again understanding your risk and focusing on those areas that are most vulnerable, that most sensitive information, as Roger said, and, and understanding the full landscape as well. It's the balancing act.
1: Roger, do you think then we should just submit to the fact that business will never act or react like a government which has got far bigger? pool of resources and funds to fight this. And if, if, first, that's, let's acknowledge that that's the reality. And if that's the case, then how do we, we cannot eat the cake and have it too. So, so what would be a good benchmark for business versus trying to strive to become government level secured organization, in your view?
3: Well, I don't think they need to become a government level uh, uh, sort of secure. And of course, the government doesn't always do so well themselves as, uh, uh, as we're aware. Uh, <clears throat> I think that, uh, Roy pointed out a couple of, uh, uh, of issues. I, that the core issue of one of the operating systems we run on, uh, you can't have really uh, good security if you don't have uh, sound operating systems. The security patches and things that we have are really <laughs> almost an academic an and that's in sharp contrast to sort of the verifiable protection kind of approach in which these systems run for decades and never ever have a security patch that's a paradigm shift that i can have an operating system <clears throat> that in terms of the security never has a security patch <clears throat> so uh i think those are things that we can do if we look for example uh, several years ago uh, the question of usability uh, is actually, I think, a bit of a, 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 a of a straw man that is not so r- r- real. The uh, In the mainframe era, uh, we had these capabilities, a system called Multics. that was offered by Honeywell, <clears throat> which did provide for the labeling and identification of information. And that system was used by Ford and General Motors, for example, to protect their engineering data from administrative data, that sort of thing. The very same system was used in the Pentagon. And it was a system that ran for years and didn't have uh, these regular security patches. The difficulty is that not a lot of other people thought security was important in that era, and so the vendors uh, no longer offer that. You simply cannot buy today from a major vendor uh, a product which has that capability of labeling uh, the information and protecting it uh, against a serious attack. That is something that the vendors can be encouraged to do. Talking to the, the major vendors out there today, they agree they could build that. They tell me that they don't think the customers are willing to pay. But I think what it demonstrated in Ford and General Motors is it was not devastating to the usability. Yes, there are some adaptations you have to do to the way you run things, and they did. But the question is, do I make those trade-offs? And I start down that path by identifying my information, saying what is sensitive, Saying where the information is allowed to flow, and then uh, more clearly identify what I need in terms of products. I agree you do not boil the ocean. You don't need to boil the ocean. You only need to have those strong controls at the point where those uh, different domains interface.
1: So, uh, Roy, if I were to come back to you and say we, we spoke about this big data and big intelligence, what is the simplest and most accurate way of defining what this is?
2: Well, I would say if if we're looking at big data as it applies to APTs, um, you know, we certainly need to know what an APT does from a technical perspective. And that's critical to really helping, I think, implement defenses and tuning your security sensors and understanding what might show up in the logs, et cetera, um, is an indicator that there may be be a problem. Um, but from a or from a non-technical perspective, you also have to understand the mindset you know, and do some cyber profiling and understand those various threats. Again, you know, as we've been talking about, um, what are you trying to protect and who are you trying to protect it from? Um, who, who will be targeting you and understanding their mindset, what they might be after. So, as, you know, Roger said, you know, we don't have totally secure operating systems and the genie, you know, came out of the, the bottle um, when we opened Pandora's box a long time ago with distributed computing and it's just the fact mainframes are, are have always been more secure than a distributed system or platform and with mobile applications and just the the demand from business and the consumers you know speed to to market speed to um... to have something available you know the the data-driven environment that we're in today you know, it has changed you know, how you protect things and how quickly things are delivered so I, I think you have to understand you know what it is you're trying to protect, what you can secure, um, and as Roger said, you know those things that are most sensitive you know social security numbers, healthcare information, your banking data, you know if you put that behind uh, layers of security in a secure you know, a secure computing facility as possible and then design uh, around that how do you get that information presented, how do you get that information retrieved what are the the integrating components if you will you know that's i think the next steps it's difficult to achieve it's costly and then that's the challenge you know i think um you know trying to to get the budget to build that because there's nothing that's on the market today that does you know that you can just get off the shelf you have to design that internally you have to almost build your systems and and that's a cost and you know if you're going to pay for secure design such as that to protect information to the nth degree you know what are you not going to invest in as an organization so IT does not unfortunately live, you know, in isolation. It's part of many other departments and divisions of any large corporation.
1: Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And Roger, let's look at this, this, this whole concept of big intelligence as Roy defined what it is. Now it requires a lot of collection and churning of data and then interpretation. And we have to look at whether we can trust that interpretation or the source of data. And all overall, if you have all of this beautiful looking insight into every aspect of your business or where the vulnerability is, now you've created a bomb literally, which when, if it could get in the hands of people, because this even this information in this compiled form could get leaked. So you've literally handed over to someone a, a, a golden key to your fortress. So what do you do to go through this process to find information about it, but still keep that particular information secure so that eventually you've not created a self-destructing mechanism? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll
0: be right back. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud.
4: The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google lead the charge portal.
0: You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All, Welcome back.
1: So, uh, Roger, when we say this is what we want to accomplish in terms of a big intelligence, and this is a process, it's a costly process, it's time consuming, it'll take time away and money away from something else they could do to further their business. What do you think is a good way to start and good way to manage this project so that it eventually you're able to get the budgets for it? And even when you get the budgets for it, you are able to trust whatever you've created because that's going to become the foundation of how you secure the port.
3: Well, I think that the uh, issue of security policy, in other words, defining what's sensitive and who has access to that sensitive information, you know, I said before, is I think the first step. That takes some organizational Uh, awareness and adjustment, and and Roy's talking about the difficulties of organizations in terms of how it affects their usability and their perceptions of business. If everybody has access to all the information sort of as they want to, then you've given the adversary uh, an opportunity. Uh, I think the question of whether I'm doing this uh, massive surveillance or not doesn't really uh, deter the uh, serious adversary uh, that significantly. For example, uh, one of the kind of attacks that was demonstrated, uh, in the university environment, uh, was that the students put a, uh, so-called trapdoor backdoor into a, a Windows operating system. And out of about 40 million lines of code, they added six lines of code. With that six lines of code, they could absolutely dynamically install anything they wanted at a very low level. It simply isn't going to show up on all the kind of usual, uh, things you're looking at in terms of uh, surveillance. And if you don't know that particular attack is there, you're not going to uh, to notice it. And that's where the, the attacker spent a relatively small amount of money to install that kind of thing. And yet uh, to try and defend against that with surveillance simply isn't going to uh, be effective. So I think that the those choices have to be made, but they're not just the cost of dollars of giving the CIO an amount of money. It's organizationally saying, security, we are going to categorize our data. We're going to indicate who has authorization to which data. And that will disrupt somewhat the organization's, but if it's not expressed, you can't know when you succeed.
1: Right. If suppose there was uh, a vulnerability that you identify, and maybe there was an attack which caused you some loss, but say cost you costed you a hundred dollars. And when you look at what will it take type of kind of using big intelligence or other measures that you could put in place in order for it to be prevented, that would cost you a thousand dollars. Would you live with it?
2: Um, no, I think uh, anybody in this roller position um, would look at what information, what intelligence did, did we glean? What did we learn, you know, from the event or the incident? And what steps can we take to, A, procedurally, um, improve, uh, from a process improvement, um, or governance perspective? What do we need to do? As well as what technology we might be able to apply to solve the situation or, or, or the exposure or whatever it was that created, um, created that incident. I mean, as Roger said, you know, It's very easy to circumvent a system if you know what you're doing. If you have, you know, the advanced skills, or whether you know it's somebody tampering with an operating system during installation or misconfiguration intentionally, or an APT. um, You know, those opportunities to get in exist. Um, I think what you look for is not detecting necessarily you try to find those vulnerabilities before you put in a system I mean my department we run certification programs and scans we do a number of things to ensure things are as, as tight and locked down as possible but you then you know when there's an event something happened somebody did something there is activity um you know it's it's difficult to wipe all traces of activity so you know it's understanding in the logs and in um you know the controls what was circumvented what was bypassed you know what happened and then what do you do differently to prevent that next time? And it's incremental progress. I think in the security industry, one thing I've learned in 30-plus you know, years, there's never the Big Bang Theory here. Um, it's always incremental progress. Security is always catching up. Um, you know, the, the, whether it's malicious actors doing something or just human error that causes a problem, you know, that's always going to be there. And you're always fixing. You're always improving. Um, so you don't throw up your arms and, and you say, we can't ever fix this. You know, but you also have to have a mindset that we're going to make progress. It will be at times incremental. You know, I'd love to measure it with a yardstick. You know, I'm happy if I can do it with a ruler. Sometimes it's with a micrometer. Um, and I think, again, it depends on the industry that you're in and what the tolerance is to allow or to live with something. You know, for example, in healthcare, you know, we are highly regulated. Um, and, you know, when we do have an issue or a compromise, um, or the B word, the breach word. Um, you know, we pay dearly, not only in the public perception, but you know, certainly from you know federal uh, regulatory oversight fines and things such as that. So I think we all look at how do we improve, and what lessons do we learn from when we do have an incident, and you know, we look at the cost for you know, what would that fix take, and you know, sometimes you say it's we have to bite the bullet and we have to pay the cost.
1: To what degree? I mean, we did a show a long time back about the big data veracity challenge, which was, you know, you got so many people, there is a handoff and and there are challenges in the way the source uh, was an issue or the way it was churned was an issue or or the way it was interpreted, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, Roger, do you think big data now with that has been utilized in so many different uh, industries and so many different applications have been there, can we – Uh, in a predictable manner, utilize this big intelligence which is churning security-related data using big data approach to apply and and safely and uh, confidently apply to handle APTs?
3: Uh, I do not think that's possible. I think the the professional societies, the uh, the Association for Community Machinery uh, had a webinar a while back that pointed out that security with a deliberate adversary is they'd call it is fundamentally different than other kinds of engineering because of the fact that you have an adversary you're not just looking at sort of natural events as they occur which are approximated by the sort of amateur hackers so that i you know, for example in terms of trying to uh, look at the logs uh, a number of years ago when i was on a tiger team uh, we uh, demonstrated an attack on a, a, a system made a change in the system The people who had the system uh, had their logs and they relied on them, and indeed our entry in the log was there for a few uh, milliseconds, and then we pitched up the logs and patched them up. So the, the log had everything in it except the event that we did in terms of subversion. And yet, because they relied on the logs, they said, well, it never happened because there's no evidence of the log. I think one of the challenges you have with the big data is you have this huge mass of data, and it becomes a place where the serious attacker who's out doing uh, subversion can hide among all of those details.
1: So Roger when uh you look at all of these things the way it is so is it your prediction that we will continue to have this haziness if you will on what big big data or big intelligence can do or do you think there is there is some light at the end of the tunnel Well I think that the uh there will be apparent
3: progress meaning we'll be able to deal with the amateur uh, attacks and we'll be able to demonstrate how good we're doing because we can say well look at these attacks we saw that we weren't able to see before, and that will be perceived as progress. The difficulty in my mind is that those attacks are not by the determined adversary. They're not by the people that are really going to go serious business to our uh, business. It's what the leader of DHS several years ago called the nuisance attacks. Yeah, they make the press, they show things, but they aren't the things that result in major losses. Those attacks, I think, were not going to make significant progress with the big intelligence.
1: Roy, when you look at the the state where we are in, in terms of trying to um, handle APTs and want to apply big data, what are the mistakes that are being made, which is put us in the situation we are in where we don't have truly the faith in the technologies that are available or the results that we are seeing are not up to uh, our expectations the way we thought they will be.
2: Well, I think Roger um, summed it up uh, very accurately. you know, Big data is not the silver bullet, uh, and I think you know we, we will I, I, I believe'm uh, the optimist, the glasses have full see so. Um, I think eventually we, we will get there. but um, I, I agree it's going to take a long time. That's why I think I referred to earlier in the show um, small data or medium data. You know the big data and just pouring everything into you know an analytical engine or some type of a magical security council is not going to be there. Um, and as Roger said, you know, a skilled uh, attacker can get in and wipe out, you know, evidence that they were there very, very quickly. You know, this, so the types of computing power, the types of you know intelligence uh, systems that you need to detect that um, don't exist. I mean, they they just don't. And will they ever? I'm not sure. Um, so what you have to do is look at what you do have, and you may not detect, you know, initially. You know the the penetration or the compromise, but you may be able to detect you know other behavioral's that indicates you that something's going on, and it may not be a log entry. It may be you know one of your sensors that you you have in place. It may be unusual activity of user accounts um, that are being being used or privileged escalations. I mean, there's all kinds of indicators that you can look for. A skilled adversary is going to try to obviously. Um, um, cover up you know what they've done and that's what they do so understanding I think not just from the technical perspective big data which is just you know let's face it's structured and there's tons of unstructured data that the intelligence engines just can't have it's also being you know you know wise in understanding what an adversary will do That's the cyber profiling again so if your security team and is aware and has some understanding Of what an adversary might do if they were to get access, how they laterally move through your systems, how they go through, you know, a privileged escalation, the life cycle, or or if you will, of an APT attack, Um, you may start looking for things. It's the anomalies. It's it's like any indicator that something may be amiss. Um, Big data is not going to get us there uh, because there's so much noise in in that in that system. Where do you find that needle in that haystack? And that's very, very difficult. But that's why I like to say, let's look at small data and medium data. And based on what it is you're trying to protect, what's that sensitive information? What do you put around that? What do you look for? And how do you layer your security to protect that to indicate that somebody's trying to penetrate that defensive barrier?
1: Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And, And then let's look at some of the lessons learned from the activities that may have been done. Maybe Roger may have come across organizations who have tried certain things that did not work, as well as some places where there was some headway made in terms of uh, trying to leverage big intelligence or some other process improvements, which essentially gave some hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel and we will be able to eventually nail this. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back.
4: The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google, lead the charge portal.
0: If you have a question or comment call toll free at one eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. 472 5790 that number again is one eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. 472 5790 now back to the show here's Sun Joke all
1: welcome back so uh Roger if you were to look at you know the conversations you may have had or you you may have uh, discussed this with people or trends that you've seen any specific horror stories, success stories, lessons learned from what was done versus not done. Something which was omitted caused problem or something which was done caused problem or helped go in the right direction. What has happened in real life?
3: Well, I think uh, I mentioned, for example, the uh, operations at uh, Ford and General Motors, which I considered a relatively uh, a good uh, success story in terms of it demonstrated both the usability with some adjustments to the organization of uh, actually labeling the the data of identifying what's sensitive and what's not and who has access to that. And uh, that was uh, fairly effective. And they believed it did protect uh, the information and the operation went on. It had to have some adjustments in the operations. There's no doubt uh, of that. But they were not massive kind of adjustments. So I think that is a, 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 a successful case. I think that they... Uh, the horror stories of where people uh, where it didn't work out, and you can sort of read the newspapers. But uh, several years ago, when the grocery chain in the Northeast uh, had the problem uh, of a major loss, the press report said, "Well, there were 300 stores that they found had this unauthorized software in it." Now, uh, the sort of mental image is somebody who's running around in a little Volkswagen Bug, breaking into 300 stores and installing this software, no. Somebody installed that basic software and it got distributed uh, for them. And how does that happen? Well, if in the supply chain I make these court of insertions of the sort of the six lines of code I mentioned that, you know, could be put in an operating system, it gets distributed widely and it can be used by the attacker at will. I think the place where uh, the horror stories haven't uh, occurred but will is in the so-called cloud computing where we now have people that are sharing the information Ford and General Motors now may be on the same cloud in some abstract way, and yet there is no longer the sharp distinction in terms of which data is sensitive and, and which isn't. And I think that's the uh, disaster waiting to happen. Uh, if you look at the recent kind of reports and the, you know, sketchy reports from things like uh, Target's uh, <coughs> experience, you say, well, what could have uh, controlled that? Well, we, in terms of technology, Uh, we, as I know, we can label the data. Also, in terms of the software that was installed, we can provide very strong controls against installation of uh, unauthorized softwares. Uh, Yet those controls are typically not in place in terms of particularly what the vendors have as well as the procedures. So I think that those are things that we can do But the disaster that I think is waiting to happen is really with the, the cloud computing if we just continue to give more opportunities to the adversary.
1: So Roy, when you were to uh, take the experience that you've had in trying to dealing with security and the way you see the leadership out there, the way they are handling the security role, what is it that you think could be done differently, better, and any other things which they may not be doing today which would be causing them to be not exactly nervous but not be able to uh, fill the shoes of the new security leader? who is supposed to handle this new animal, which is APT? Great question, Sanjog. You know, I think, as Roger said, when you look
2: at, you know, the breaches, the exposures, the incidents that have happened over the years in the press, uh, most often it gets right down to a breakdown of fundamentals. Um, We can talk about advanced persistent threats, but, you know, how often are you going to be targeted and, and, again, you know, who's going to do it and spend the money? And, and there, there are vulnerabilities. depends on your industry. Um, you know, will an ABT, APTBO entity, a nation state be coming after a major grocery store chain? Probably not. Um, you never want to rule anything out and say never, you know, but you look at what your risk is. I think most risks um, are created because we're not following the fundamental basics. And I mean things such as, you know, when you're installing, you know, a new server you know do you have a governance program in place do you know how that software should be installed is it being reviewed you know by a second set of eyes um... are you turning off you know various protocols and services that you do not need you know telnet etc are you securing your communications internally and externally you know with the best encryption mechanisms that you can Um are you managing your accounts and who has privileged access both locally and on the network itself. Are you doing those fundamentals? Are you scanning, certifying that every time the server is touched, it's, it, the security is working to the level it's supposed to be, do you have configuration standards? Um, all of those fundamentals that we as security professionals know, are we doing those? And it's just not us in Info, InfoSec, it's the organization, the IT organization itself. You know, it's the network administrators, it's the applications development teams, etc. And so it's awareness, but it's also governance. And, you know, is code being developed? Is it being reviewed for, you know, vulnerabilities? I mean, my gosh, we've heard about SQL injection issues for years, and there's still code that's vulnerable to it. Um, you know, so, so are we doing the fundamentals to not just protect, you know, against APTs, but to just protect against the basic hackers that are out there? You know, that's low, low-hanging fruit, if you will, but, but that exposure is real, and it exists, and more companies are vulnerable to that. You know, when you think about it, you know, massively, then the APTs themselves, APTs are going to, you know, happen. We're going to see those. But if you close the door and you're doing a lot of the fundamentals right, you lessen the chance of having an exposure. Um, Because we have to remember that an APT, it starts with somebody getting in. And now it could be an insider, absolutely, and that's obviously difficult to prevent. And you have to, you know, look at that differently. But, you know, oftentimes it's through phishing emails. Um, that's the initial trigger. Um, you know, it's through somebody clicking or, or, or going uh, a waterhole. You know, a malicious website. Somebody's going to a legitimate website that had a vulnerability, and and there's malicious code. So there's a lot of ways that we can just improve or lessen the risk. Um, of being exposed to an ABT by doing the basics, the fundamental blocking and tackling that unfortunately doesn't happen because it's, you know, quick. Everybody's overworked. You've got to get, you know, systems in and software developed and and implemented quickly, um, to stay competitive in the business sector.
1: Roger, one final question. What's your appeal to the CISOs out there, to the business owners and the people within the organization so that they are not um, becoming a victim of their own, uh, you know, thinking and or, or convictions about what is to be done versus where to be investing the dollars judiciously.
3: Well, I, my first uh, appeal to them is to work with the organizations, not something they can solve themselves, but the total organization to identify and what NIST calls categorize the data. In other words, be able to identify the different levels of sensitivity and who it is that's authorized that sensitive data, and then you have something to guide your defenses to put the money where it matters. So that's the first thing is to uh, categorize or label uh, the information and build your organizational structure to respect that. The second thing, I think, is to recognize that – uh security is a a, a skill, a technology of itself, and to have people that do understand that in the organization and to give them a a voice. One of the reasons that we have that as a master's program here at USC is that we think it's important to be able to train people, professionals, who understand that. And so organizations need to recognize that that is a a skill that they need to give uh, attention to. And my third observation would be in terms of the vendor's Tell the vendors if you're, you're categorizing the data, they should provide that you can provide a market for the products which do in fact enforce uh, that labeling in a, in a highly secure way.
1: On behalf of the show and our listeners, I'd really like to thank you, um, Roger and Roy, for sharing your thoughts on how organizations can safeguard against APTs, perhaps get better, uh, and and to whatever degree big intelligence can support, they leverage it. Thank you so much again. And uh, listeners, please like us on Facebook, search for CIO Talk Radio, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. Thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Radio. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless.
0: Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio.